0: Well, today is October 31st, as I'm sure you know. And October 31st is not Halloween. Well, I guess it is, but long before it was Halloween, it was Reformation Day. So October 31st is Reformation Sunday, and it's just wonderful to be here together with you on the on the 31st of October. If you'll open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. In preparation for this morning's scripture reading and in commemoration of Reformation Day. In 1515, while teaching the book of Romans at Wittenberg, Martin Luther found relief for the torment of his soul. Luther had pursued Righteousness through Roman Catholicism. Through the various rituals of the church of his day. He had made his pilgrimage to Rome. He had literally crawled on his knees in an attempt to satisfy a holy God. Acutely within his soul, he felt the reality that God is holy and that He is not. And it tormented him. And it was as he began to teach the book of Romans that Luther's eyes came upon Romans chapter 1 and in verse 17. And by the grace of God, the lights went on for him. And he realized that the righteousness that God demands, God also provides for those who come to Him by faith alone. And Luther was converted. Two years later, on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed a set of propositions, items for discussion, 95 of them, upon the door of the Wittenberg Church in Germany. That was not really an outrageous thing to do, for that was the means in those days for public discussion. It was like the bulletin board for the community. And so Luther nailed up these 95 propositions, 95 theses, in which he was taking exception to the Roman Catholic doctrine of indulgences and the sale thereof. That firestorm created by that document is marked by most historians as the official beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Of which we are the inheritors of such grand truth. So let us read this morning just a few verses out of Romans chapter 1. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, there are Bibles available for you. They're under your seat or in the pew rack in front of you. And if you'll take one out and open it up to page 1125, page 1125, you'll arrive at the first chapter of paul's letter to the church at rome we'll take our morning reading from beginning in verse 15 romans chapter 1 and beginning in verse 15 paul says thus for my part i am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in rome for i am not ashamed of the gospel For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Let's pray. Our Father, in these few verses, contained the key to unlocking Martin Luther's soul. That fastidious German monk who pursued a works based righteousness with a ferocity unlike most of his contemporaries. O Lord, all the things that one could do to make oneself pleasing before God, Luther did. And yet there was no relief for his soul. He recognized our Father as we recognize that You are holy and just. And that sin is an offense in Your eyes, a stench in Your nostrils. And that You, O Lord, will punish that sin. That your wrath is being stored up, accumulated as it were, for the day of wrath when it will break forth in terror upon this world. O Lord, Luther acutely understood these things. And he was tormented by the truth of it. And then that day, O Lord, by your grace, you opened his eyes. There in verse 17 of chapter 1, Luther came to realize the reality that the righteousness you demand, you provide through Jesus Christ, your son. And that it is his death on a cross, his atoning sacrifice, his righteous life, That satisfies your holy law. And it is ours by faith. When we believe upon Him. When we turn from our self-effort to Him. When we flee to His cross and by faith hang on tight. That you look upon us. And you are satisfied. That our sin has been atoned for. That we have been wrapped in the righteous Robe of Christ Himself. Not a righteousness of our own making, but an alien righteousness, a righteousness that is not ours, but is one that has given to us, imputed to us by faith. O oh Lord, like Luther, our eyes have been opened. We have come to be set free. We rejoice. In the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we gather here even now this morning that we might celebrate what you have done. O oh Lord, it is good as well to be here on October 31st. It is glorious that Reformation Day falls on a Sunday. What better place for your people to be, there is none, than to gather here together Worshipping our God and mutually encouraging one another. O Lord, we think of those who would love to be here this morning in our midst, but cannot because of age or infirmity, because of sickness which has laid them aside. O Lord, we pray for your mercy and your grace upon them. We pray that you would strengthen them in the inner man, that their faith would grow strong even this day. O oh, Lord that you would motivate our hearts. To extend ourselves in ministry. Not just to those who are our friends. But those O oh, Lord who are part of this body. And need our ministry among them. Father thank you for making us a body together. In Jesus name. Amen. Why don't we. Well, as Jim mentioned, and I'm sure that you all know, Tuesday is election day, national elections in this country. They're very important elections. There are a lot of issues to be decided. Going through the ballot myself, I was overwhelmed by the number of propositions that continue to appear on our ballot, and I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a sign of a dysfunctional legislature, but in either case, they're there, and we need to consider them and Ask the Lord for wisdom and utilize the opportunity and the stewardship of registering our vote. 237 years ago, September 17th, 1787, the Constitution of the United States was signed. It came out of the Constitutional Committee. At that point, they had finally agreed on a document that would govern 13 independent states and bring them together into one federal government called the United States of America. It took an additional nine months approximately for that document to be circulated among those independent states and for them to ratify it. New Hampshire was the ninth state to ratify and thus made the Constitution the document under which we continue to live almost 250 years later. That's a long time ago, 250 years. But 3,000 years before that, the God of heaven and earth chose 12 somewhat independent tribes to draw them together and to birth them out of the womb of Egypt and then bring them together as his people to make a nation out of those 12 tribes. More than 3,000 years ago. In Exodus chapter 19, he, we have recorded for us The commitment that God made to those people, those ancient people. It says, beginning in verse 5, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. There at Mount Sinai were congregated into a nation. The people of Israel, God as their king. He as their subjects. And he entered into a covenant with them. A commitment to them. A a promise to them that he would provide for them. And they in turn would listen to his voice and heed his commands. We know it as the Mosaic covenant. That was established back there. That covenant forms a foundational basis, really, of the Old Testament as it is presented to us. God is very serious about the promise He made with His ancient peoples. He committed Himself to care for them and they committed themselves to obey Him. But it wasn't very long before they didn't follow through on their commitments. And so... All those of that generation, 20 years of age and above, perished in the wilderness, never entering into the promised land that God had brought them out to receive. Forty years later, in 1405 B.C., Moses, near the end of his life, gathers the people together again on the plains of Moab, east of the Jordan River. He is giving them his final words, his final instructions. They're found for us in the book of Deuteronomy. And I want to turn you there this morning to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28. If you're using a pew Bible, page 213. These are Moses' final sermons, a second giving of the law to a new generation, about ready to enter into the promised land. And in Deuteronomy 28 and following, he is going to remind the people of the seriousness of their commitment to God and how seriously God takes that commitment. This morning, beginning here in Deuteronomy 28, I want to look at three historical realities with you. And we must take these realities into account if we're going to pray effectively for our own nation. What I want to do with you this morning is establish some historical precedent so that we might rightly approach God with respect to our own nation. I've entitled this, Prayer and the Conscience of a Nation. Beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 1, We have God's statement to His people with regard to His covenant, the first historical reality we must take into account. Now it shall be, Moses said, if you will diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, if you will obey the Lord your God. And he enumerates four of them here. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the offspring of your body, and the produce of your ground, and the offspring of your beasts, the increase of your herd, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in. And blessed shall you be when you go out. Four promises to the people. That if they will be faithful to God. To do those things that they have promised to do. Then he will bless them. And it's a comprehensive kind of blessing. Verse Three. Just notice, he says, you'll be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The idea here is that it would be a nationwide blessing from God upon these people. Beyond that, in verse four, that the blessing will include both man and animal, and they will increase in number. That your, your animals will give birth to other animals, your herds will increase, and so will your children, your wives, will be fertile. A blessing upon animal and man. Beyond that, in verse 5, blessing on your basket and your kneading bowl. The idea here being that food will be in abundance. You will have plenty to eat if you follow me. Plenty to eat. And finally, verse 6, blessed you shall be when you come in and... Blessed shall you be when you go out. That is the idea that it will cover every aspect of your life. Wherever you go, whatever you do, throughout all the land, you will be blessed. If you will but follow me. In verse 7, Moses begins to exposit these blessings, to, to elaborate them in a little more detail for the people. He says in First in verse seven, that they will have power militarily. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and shall flee before you seven ways. You will have military power. Beyond that, looking down to the end of verse 12, he says, God will bless you with financial power. All the excuse me, the end of it. And you shall lend to many nations, the end of verse 12, but you shall not borrow. That is, you will become a banker to the nations. You will lend to them. They will not lend to you. He goes on to elaborate the blessings of productivity. That's the general statement in verse 8. The Lord will command the blessing upon you in your barns and in all that you put your hand to. He will bless you in the land which the Lord your God gives you. A blessing of fertility down to verse 11. The Lord will make you abound in prosperity. In the offspring of your body and in the offspring of your beast. And in the produce of your ground. In the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. That is, you will have crops in abundance. Herds. Beyond number. He will bless you, at the beginning of verse 12, by bringing rain upon your land. The Lord will open for you his good storehouse, the heavens. To give rain to your land in its seasons and to bless all the work of your hand. Israel is a dry climate. It's kind of like Southern California here. It relies on seasonal rains to produce crops. If the seasonal rains do not come. There's no means of irrigation. The crops will fail and the people will starve. And so God says, if you follow me, I will bring rain in its season upon your land. He blesses them as well with preeminence verses 9 and 10 in terms of their reputation. He says the Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself as he swore to you. If you will keep the commandments of the Lord, your God and walk in his ways, so all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid of you. You will be a a nation of great reputation from one end to the other. People will know the nation of Israel. And he will bless you in your leadership verses thirteen and fourteen. And the Lord shall make you the head and not the tail, and you and only and you only shall be above and you shall not be underneath, that is you will be preeminent among the nations, if you will listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I charge you today to observe them carefully. And do not turn aside from any of the words which I command you today to the right or to the left to go after other gods to serve them. Amazing set of promises to these people. If you will follow me, I will prosper you. Not in a vague and generic way, but in a very specific way that will make you stand out among the nations of the world. They will know that you are my people and that I am your God. But if you do not follow me, if you do not follow me, I will curse you, God says. And beginning in verse 15, he enumerates those curses. Verse 15, but it shall come about. If you will not obey the the Lord your God to observe, to do all his commandments and his statutes, Which I charge you today that all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground. The increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be. When you go out four curses, he calls down upon them, each one corresponding to the blessing that he had previously enumerated. If you will not heed my voice, he says, if you will not fulfill the commitment you made to me, then I will surely curse you. Beginning in verse 20 and running all the way to verse 68, the end of that chapter. Moses exposits the meaning of that curse. Six times as much material given over to the specifics of the curses as was given to the promise of the blessings. God is very, very serious. It is this fundamental understanding of God's relationship with his people that lays the basis of our understanding of the prophets of the Old Testament. All that comes after this is built upon these truths. If you will obey me, I will bless you. But if you disobey me, I will surely curse you. Not in a vague and generic way, but in a very specific way. I will crush you and your land. Repeatedly from this time forward, the prophets of God speak to the nation, remind them that their troubles originate in their disobedience and call them back to the covenant, to obey that covenant. It becomes the the national promise of the nation. Turn to me and I will bless you. Why must you continually stray from me and receive my curses upon you? Turn, O turn, Israel. We go to the right, to 1 Kings, we see chapter 8, an illustration of what I mean by this. 1 Kings chapter 8, page 359. This theme of confess and return and receive the Lord's healing is the national promise to Israel. 1 Kings chapter 8 beginning in verse 33. Solomon here praying the dedication of the temple. Kings 8, beginning in verse 33. And when your people, Israel, are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, if they turn to you again and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people, Israel, and bring them back to the land which you have given to their fathers when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, and they pray towards this place and confess your name and turn from their sin with which you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and of your people Israel. Indeed, teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land which you have given your people for an inheritance. And if there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence, if there is blight or mildew, locust or grasshopper, if their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, Whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man, or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart, and spreading his hands toward this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, and forgive and act and render to each according to his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men, that they may fear you all the days, and that they may live in the land which you have given. To our fathers. This is the call to the nation. Look around you, he says. And when you see things destroyed, understand you have turned from your God. It appears not just here in 1 Kings, it is repeatedly given. Second Chronicles we could turn there. And I direct you to do that. Second Chronicles chapter 6, page 450. Just keep going to the right. Solomon again. A little more abbreviated version. For Second Chronicles chapter 6 and page 26. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you and they pray toward this place that is the temple and confess your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and your people Israel. Indeed, teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land, which you have given to your people for an inheritance. And if there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence, if there is blight or mildew, if there is locust or grasshopper, if their enemies besiege them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whenever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by all your people, Israel, each knowing his own affliction and his own pain and spreading his hands out toward your house, then hear from heaven, your dwelling place. O Lord. When your people turn, hear their cry and heal their land. And indeed, turning over one more chapter to Second Chronicles chapter seven, that's exactly what it says. Second Chronicles chapter seven and verse thirteen. If I shut up the heavens. So there is no rain. Or if I command the locusts to devour the land. Or if I send pestilence among my people. And my people who are called by my name. Humble themselves and pray. And seek my face. And turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven. Will forgive their sin. And will heal their land. If they will turn back to me, I will heal their land. I will lift the famine. I will bring the rain. I will restore the productivity of my ancient land. When the prophets speak, beloved, they are calling the nation back to this reality that God has made them a promise. And he is good to his word. Probably no better illustration of that than to turn to the right to Amos. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. There we go. Amos. That's back in the pages of your Bible where they're all white and they stick together. Okay? Okay? Amos chapter 4, page 915, if you're using a pew Bible. Amos chapter 4. When the prophets speak to the people, they call their attention to the ancient promise. They say, look around you. See your problems and remember You have turned from your God. Turn back to your God and He will heal your land. Prophet Amos, beginning in verse 6 of chapter 4. But I gave you also cleanness of teeth in all your cities. It's a great expression, by the way. Cleanness of teeth. This is a curse. This is not a blessing. It's not a promise of dental hygiene. This is a promise of there's nothing stuck between your teeth because you lack bread in all your places. Verse six. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. And furthermore, I withheld the rain from you. While there were still three months until the harvest, then I would send rain on one city and on another city. I would not send rain. One part would be rained on while the part not rained on would dry up. Two or three cities would stagger to another city to drink water, but would not be satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I smote you with scorching wind and mildew, and the caterpillar was devouring your many gardens and vineyards, fig trees and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent a plague among you after the manner of Egypt. I slew your young men by the sword along with your captured horses, and I made the stench of your camp rise up in your nostrils. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, And you are like a firebrand snatched from a blaze. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Amos is reaching back into Deuteronomy 28. And he is very specifically saying, These things have come upon you because God has sent them to you to break your proud and stubborn hearts and to turn you back to him. And yet you will not come back. You will not come back. God has a covenant with His people Israel. He is in covenant with His people Israel. If they will obey, He will bless them. But if they turn from Him, He will curse them. Second historical reality is Daniel's prayer. Turn back to the left, to Daniel chapter 9 page 893. Daniel chapter 9, page 893. This prayer recorded for us in Daniel chapter 9 is a relatively famous prayer. It is a prayer grounded in the first five books of the old testament in particular it is a prayer grounded in chapter 28 of the book of deuteronomy it is a prayer in keeping with those earlier statements that we read from solomon in first kings and second chronicles it is a prayer in line with and in keeping with second chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14 it is with all of that as a background that Daniel the prophet comes before his God to pray on behalf of his people. Verse 1. In The first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. 539 B.C. You can... Pencil it in your Bible if you'd like. 539 BC. Daniel is 82 years old. 82 years old at this point. In the first year of his reign, verse 2, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. This 82-year-old prophet has been studying his Bible. He has been reading diligently the scrolls of the prophet Jeremiah. He has watched history unfold in front of him. And he's been doing a little math. And according to his calculations, we must be getting pretty close to the 70 years of captivity that the prophet Jeremiah had foretold about 100 years prior. Specifically, Jeremiah 25, verses 11 and 12, where the prophet writes, This whole land will be a desolation and a horror. And these nations will serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Then it will be when seventy years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. Notice again, verse one. It is Darius the Mede who is now on the throne. The great kingdom of Babylon has fallen. The second of, of Nebuchadnezzar's statue, the second piece of his statue, the, the silver portion of that statue is now upon the throne. The Medo-Persians. Daniel no doubt had Jeremiah 29 verses 10 and 12, through 12 in his mind as well. Where there Jeremiah writes, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. By the way, that makes a nice piece of Art for your walls, right? Needle-pointed. I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Not plans to hurt you, but plans to prosper you, right? Come on, I've seen it in your homes. It's not written to you. It's not written to you. It's written to the nation of Israel. Prior to their Babylonian captivity. Where through the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah, God says, I know my plans for you. I will not destroy you. But you are going to go through the fire. Because you persistently have turned from me. I will bring upon you the curses of the covenant. Outlined for you in Deuteronomy 28. And so Daniel, now that ancient prophet, standing in for his people, begins to pray for his nation. And he forms his prayer along the lines of Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and repent and turn to me, I will heal their land. Beginning in verse 3. Daniel says, so I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth and ashes. Daniel's prayer, by the way, I'll just read it for you in a minute here. It has two essential parts. The first is a very lengthy confession. Where he confesses the sins of his people. Follows that with some petition. That is, he makes supplication. He asks God to do something on their behalf. And then beginning in verse 20 and running to the end of the chapter, God sends him an answer. But we must understand this whole prayer is framed around and formed upon the Mosaic covenant, the promise to that ancient people. It is in that Based upon that promise, with that certainty of mind that Daniel can read in Jeremiah's scrolls that the the end of the captivity is close at hand and he can turn in confidence to his God and know that if his people will repent and will turn to their God, he will heal them. And I prayed to the Lord, verse 4, my God, and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and loving kindness." to those who love Him and keep His commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from Your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to Your servants, the prophets, who spoke in Your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to You, O Lord, but to us open shame as it is this day to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away in all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness for we have rebelled against him nor have, have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us along with the oath which was written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Thus he has confirmed his words which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring on us great calamity, for under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what was done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us, and yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us, For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done. But we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord, our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day, we have sinned, we have been wicked. That's a confession. And then he turns and begins to make supplication. O Lord, verse 16, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, listen and take action for your own sake. Oh, my God, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. We will not take the time to finish out the chapter, but you will notice. Look down at verse 24, that the answer that comes to him Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Do you see it? God outlines for Daniel what he has in store for his people through the end of time. They haven't suffered enough yet. Ultimately, the man of sin will come. He will make the covenant of peace, which he will break in the middle of the 70th week. And He will bring devastation on the land, a devastation that will ultimately and finally turn the people of Israel back to their God. And they will call out for Him whom they have pierced. And Messiah will come to rescue them and will establish true peace and prosperity in their land for a thousand years. It's called the great millennium. God's covenant with Israel. Daniel's prayer for his people built on that covenant. The third historical reality is our response to all of this. What do we do with it? What do we do with all of this? Beloved, America has no covenant with God. There is no national covenant, no national promise from God to us. There has only been one nation, in the history of the world, that has ever had a direct and personal promise from God, and that is Israel. And we are not Israel. Daniel's prayer here is not a prayer for America. But it's not worthless to us. All Scripture is inspired of God and profitable, right? We can learn something from this prayer. We can we can model our own prayer upon Daniel's prayer. It can be that model for us. Some days ago, when Pastor Jim asked me to prepare something special for this. This morning to kick off this week of prayer, I was really. Confused about what I wanted to to do, what I want to say immediately my mind went to daniel 9 and daniel's prayer as a as a great model and i thought about it thought a lot about it and then there was a verse in the new testament that just kept coming to my mind i couldn't shake it loose i even talked to a few people about it and they all advised me don't do it <laughs> and i'm going to do it anyway because <laughs> i couldn't shake it loose It's found in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 17. Don't turn there, I'll just read it to you. Peter says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. I couldn't get away from that verse. As I thought about prayer and the conscience of a nation. I couldn't get away from that verse. And so I have written a prayer for us. A prayer for the evangelical church. Now, I'm not a prophet. I'm not. I'm just a pastor of a local church. And I am acutely aware of my own sin and shortcomings. Believe me. So I, I don't do this by standing aloof from either you or the church at large. I'm very much a part of it all. But I think we've got a real problem. I think that before we seek to pull the speck out of the eye of our culture at large, we need to first remove the massive log that sticks out from our own eye. It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. There is any hope of reforming this nation. It must begin with God's people. Before I read that prayer, I'm going to ask the musicians to come up here now, please. Come find your seats. I'm going to test your ability to concentrate this morning. We just... But you know what's going to happen. I've asked them to come up now so there won't be a lot of moving around later. I have written out a prayer that I'm going to read. I did this because I spent a long time writing it because I wanted to say what I wanted to say. And I didn't trust myself if I didn't write it out. So I'm going to read it. It's going to require your powers of concentration to listen to a prayer of this length. When I finish, the instrumentalists will play softly for about a minute. That will be your time for your own private meditation. It's also a time for those of you who need to get to the back door to go to the back door. When they finish that minute-long musical devotion time, or meditation time, you will be dismissed. Okay? So that's what we're going to do. After the music stops, you will be dismissed. Now, as I read this prayer. It's not going to be true of all of us. We're not going to be all equally guilty of everything. Some things won't apply to you. Some things will. Listen. And amen in your heart those things which are true of you. So although we are not all guilty of the same offenses, we are all equally guilty before God. May God grant us the grace to change. Pray with me. O Lord, you are creator of heaven and earth, and all exist to reflect your glory. We are your people, called out of darkness into your marvelous light, saved by the blood of Jesus, and sealed by your Holy Spirit unto the day of redemption. You have given us a new heart, and our desire is to worship you, but our obedience is faulty. And the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil are strong. We live among a people who are in open rebellion against you. Yet in honesty, we need look no further than our own reflection to see the manifestations of that same rebellion. So rather than sit in judgment upon their sins, O Lord, we take this time to confess the sins of our own house. Our Father, we have sinned against you financially in that both publicly and privately, we have relentlessly pursued for decades a lifestyle of conspicuous consumption fueled by an insatiable appetite for debt. As individuals, we have borrowed the inflated equity from our homes To finance our lavish and materialistic lifestyles, we have rejected one set of elected officials for another, self righteously condemning their greed and self promoting ways, while we ourselves regularly fail to humble our own hearts and resist our greed and serve our fellow man. We have also sinned against you morally by decrying the sewage that pours forth from Hollywood, while at the same time filling their coffers with the money that you have entrusted to our care. Too many of our pastors condemn the vile and soul-damning perversion of pornography, all the while gripped by their own dark and shameful lusts. O Lord, what hope do your people have when even their leaders seem powerless To resist. We justly condemn the perversion of homosexual marriage. Yet make a mockery out of heterosexual marriage. By a divorce rate indistinguishable from society at large. We speak and write about family values. Yet are mostly silent. While our own young redefine the boundaries of morality. In terms of modesty. Sexual promiscuity alcohol, and drugs. Furthermore, we have sinned against you evangelically in that we lament the erosion of authority yet have contributed to it by our unwillingness to come under submission to the Word of God. By rejecting the spiritual oversight of our leaders, we reserve to ourselves unprecedented latitude of private interpretation. We have misunderstood and misapplied the meaning of Christian love by tolerating virtually any and all deviant behavior and belief within the boundaries of professing evangelicalism. In society, we have privatized our faith and chosen to keep silent rather than rock the boat and speak out boldly for our King, thus contributing to the damning notion that truth is relative. We have demonstrated a hardness of heart and judgmental spirit concerning those caught in the sin of homosexual attraction by mocking their condition and withholding compassion from them as individuals made in the image of God. We care little and pray even less for the conversion of the lost and instead withdraw to Christian ghettos in a foolish attempt to avoid the contamination of sin, rejecting in the process your purpose for our lives. We have failed to pray consistently for our leaders and instead through omission and commission. We have allowed ourselves to become a political special interest group to whom cynical and self-serving politicians toss a few scraps in exchange for our vote. We portray the local church as the spiritual equivalent of a fast food restaurant designed to meet our needs rather than the sovereign creation of almighty God through which you display the glory of Christ to an unbelieving world. Our inability to love and serve one another in humility leads to a willingness to abandon the church rather than stay and work out our differences and communicates to the world that Christian unity is no deeper than the local Rotary Club. Oh God, any one of these corporate or individual sins would be more than enough To justify you casting us eternally from your presence. And yet we remain secure in Christ. Bound to you by his grace. It's based on the merits of Christ. We turn from our confession. And we make these requests. That you would continue to extend your mercy and grace. In saving people from the ravages of sin. That we, the church would regain our sense of urgency for preaching the gospel and making disciples. That you would restrain the forces that desire to squelch the gospel message and bar it from the public square. If in your providence, O Lord, we are entering into a long night of darkness, that you would grant us boldness to speak out for Christ and suffer joyfully for the sake of the name. We ask that you would help us not to place our faith in elected officials, but to understand that true and lasting change comes only as a result of conversion and that we would thus utilize our opportunities to impact society one person at a time. That your common grace, O Lord, we ask, would continue to be poured out and that our republic would prosper spiritually, relationally, and materially. We ask that you would enable us not to pine for the past in which lay the seeds of our present distress, but that you would help us live as lights among a wicked and perverse generation. We ask that you would give our elected leaders wisdom and integrity to govern an increasingly factious and uncooperative citizenry. We ask that you would grant Solomonic wisdom to our elected leaders as they face the complex and emotionally charged issues of economic stagnation, immigration, balkanization, and global conflict. We ask, O God, that Christian men and women would continue to be willing to sacrifice career and fortune in order to humbly serve their fellow citizens as elected representatives. We ask that you would utilize the pressures of public office to cause unbelieving politicians to be open to hear and believe the gospel of grace. We ask that you would grant us wisdom, wisdom to all those who go to the polls on Tuesday to cast their vote. Finally, our Father, we thank you. We thank you that salvation is by grace through faith and not as a result of human effort. For none could be saved. We thank you, our Father, for enabling us to understand and believe that you are sovereign over leaders and nations and that you providentially rule your world. We thank you, our Father, for the privilege to live in a country where the transition of power from one group to another occurs by the ballot rather than the bayonet. O God, hear our prayer. Amen.